Welcome to In Conversation with Lyndon Terracini, a podcast where we meet the extraordinary talents, both on stage and off, working at Opera Australia. These conversations were all originally filmed for our streaming service, OATV. You can find more online at tv.opera.org.au, as well as full productions and behind-the-scenes footage. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to OATV. And my very special guest today is Tony David Cray, the extraordinary sound designer who was responsible for the sound quality at Honda Opera on Sydney Harbour and many, many other things. So, Tony, welcome to OATV. Thank you, Lyndon. It's great to see you. <laughs> Likewise. So, um, you're a fantastic sound designer. You're the guru of sound now. So, where did this interest in sound come from? I, the earliest... Somebody asked me recently, actually, where the first time I was conscious of sound and it was that my response was sort of met with a little bit of a glib view but um, it was my father had the, the version of Sound of Silence by the Bachelors which mm -hmm. is like an acapella group and I'm, I can vividly remember as a child but I would have been about four years old leaning against the speaker and just hearing the timbre of the voices blending on you know hello dark, darkness my old friend mm -hmm. which um, that's what my friend was saying was a little bit glib but it was so moving and I felt emotional um, at the, the way it made my body feel and it's something that I've sort of haven't managed to uh, get out of my life ever since then. Mm. I mean sound design for a lot of people is, is sort of similar to the dark arts really. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to understand. It's not just about putting up a couple of speakers and turning up the knob. No. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, the intricate um, design that you developed for Honda Opera on Sydney Harbour for example? Sure. I mean, yeah, it's in interesting you say that, you know, it's a dark art because, you know, of all of our senses, music and sound is one of those ones that they believe is quite closer to various parts of the brain. So mm. we respond to it as opposed to be conscious of it. Mm. You know, you can go to a gallery and, and you can feel moved looking at a painting, mm. but you can walk away and start humming the music that was playing in the background and you weren't aware of it at the time. Mm. And so achieving, you know, what people would class as acceptable sound or good sound is hard to talk about or um, pursue because it's hard to define. Mm, mm. Um, so I've always uh, anchored myself in the way it feels. Mm. You know, if it feels good, then it is good. Yeah. And often the ways you will achieve that are slightly uh, perhaps counterintuitive. Mm. But with Hand Opera on Sydney Harbour, there were a, you have a bank of speakers across the front, you have uh, speakers underneath the grandstand, uh, speakers on the side, um, uh, delay speakers in, in yeah. various parts. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you, because I remember you showing me a whole design on paper about how this would look and how mm. it would sound. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you, the, the methodology behind that? Yeah, I remember the first time you came to me and talked about your idea for Hander Opera on the Harbour. Mm. And um, I remember laughing, just thinking that's <laughs> so ambitious. Um, it was going to force new, um, new approaches. There was, it was going to be going into realms of never having done certain things to mm. um, the singers before. You know, and the, the Hander Opera, you know, means that you have an orchestra in one place, singers in another. They're not connected visually mm. or, in, you know, um, uh, uh, physically. physically. Yeah. And then you've got an audience which is sitting out in an area which has a very high noise floor. Mm. And you've got to somehow bring all this together and then at the same time ensure that the natural beauty and dynamics of the music are preserved. Mm. And, you know, the biggest challenge for us at the start was working out how to get the singers connected to the orchestra, mm. you know, and so the only real option was to put singers on these awful things called in-ear monitors mm. where they can hear in their ear a mix of the orchestra, mm. you know. And, and themselves, a, yeah. That's right, as, yeah. as a singer, 
you know, that, that presents all sorts of challenges yeah. because you, you're experiencing the music in a very different emotional way. Yeah. And so therefore your ability to follow the tempo and the pitch becomes uh, re really um, hin ha sort of uh, hindered. I think one of the great things about those in-ear monitors, uh, which are different to, to the primitive ones that uh, other people have been using up until you know, something like Hosh, is that uh, for a singer, when you can't hear yourself because your ear is blocked, it's really unnerving That's because right. uh, you don't know where your voice is and so on and so on. But with these, uh, the singers can be adjusted so they can hear themselves as well as the orchestra in their yes. in-ear monitors, yes. which is a fantastic thing. That's right. I mean, I was leading into uh, La Traviata, the first opera on the harbour. Um, I was nervous for all sorts of reasons, but there was an added layer in that my partner, Miranda, her father was mm. singing Jamont in that. Yeah. And I thought, I can either make this work or not work. And if I don't make it work, it's going to be cold shoulder at Christmas times <laughs> for my life. Yes. So there was a, a, an added layer to it. But Jonathan um, has a history in um, radio. He used to be a radio engineer for oh, was he? ABC I in the old days in Melbourne. Uh -huh. Well, he, he, he embraced it immediately. Out of all the singers, he did. He really embraced it. And he came up with a solution for the singers. And that was very, it sort of talks to what I was mentioning before about it's slightly not the way you should do it. Mm but it came up with a great result. And he did a modification to the earpieces that allowed them to hear themselves acoustically, uh -huh. not block the ear, but yeah. also hear the orchestra. And now when we do opera in the harbour, the singers are offered you know, the, the normal method or the Jonathan Summers method. Yeah. And you invariably they go for that one. Yeah. yeah. I should say though, that at the end of the day, the singers and the musicians blew my mind in that I would stand on stage and try and hear the quality of the sound they're hearing through the, the a few speakers we yeah, would yeah. put on stage for them. Yeah, the I would hear speakers. their voice bouncing back from the audience, coming back at them in enormous delay. Mm. And yet they're able to sing, and they're able to sing beautifully mm. in that environment. It just it never ceases to blow my mind. Yeah, no, it's, look, it's a fantastic experience yeah. when we're there. <laughs> but then um, in recent years, we've had um, more speakers underneath uh, the grandstand. Do you want to talk about that and, 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 and the use of delay speakers and what yeah. that means? Opera on the Harbour is a real challenge because you have this very, very wide environment. Um, you know, it's like four times as wide as it is deep. And most mm. theatres are much more deeper than they are wide. Mm. So you, what that means for the audience members and for trying to cover people with sound is that you have a very narrow band to cover with a typical audience or a cinema. Mm. Everyone's in a big, long rectangle. Whereas Opera on the Harbour, it's exactly the opposite. You've got this mm. massive wide space. Mm. So, you know, just time of flight for sound and delays and these kind of things is challenging. Also, out in the harbour, you have no walls. Mm. So the sound just disappears. Yeah. So that means, you know, you have one moment of sound on stage and it just expands in a sphere around the singer and the audience members just get a tiny bit and that's it. Mm. If you're in a beautiful theatre, you get it bouncing off the walls mm. and it echoes mm. around. And we, we spent quite a lot of time trying to work out how to simulate that that um, feeling of being wrapped in an auditorium. Mm. And I always draw the analogy of um, like heating. You can have different styles of heating. Mm -hmm. and the way that um, you know, we had to start with Opera on the Harbour was almost like with bar heaters across the front mm. where mm. it's all very warm, the sound's emanating, and, mm. but the people down the front are getting a bit hot and the yes. people at the back are getting quite, you know, <laughs> they're getting a cold back. So yeah. we tried to work at how best to create this virtual um, auditorium around the mm. audience. And, one of the guys working um, with us from Norwest, um, we were complaining about being able to hear some of the sound from all of the, uh, the dancers, et cetera, underneath the seating bank. Mm. And we realised that the seating bank um, was transparent acoustically. And that gave us an instant um, uh, in on how to be able to have hundreds of speakers in mm. the audience, but yeah. they're not to be seen. So we yeah. put them actually under the seating bank. Yeah. 
yeah. and we use the way the seating bank expands in its height and changes the way sound bounces around to our advantage. Mm. So instead of it being a problem, it became a real um, help. It mm. meant that by putting sound of the singers and the orchestra through all of those delay speakers underneath the seating bank yeah. and delaying them so essentially the time of audio matches it as it goes through the auditorium. Yeah. The upshot is, is that an audience member sits there and they feel like they have central heating on them. Mm. And you know, the difference for us was light and day. Do you want to explain a little bit about um, what it means by delay speakers? Because it's a cr an incredibly sof sophisticated way of doing sound. So do you want to just talk about how you actually do that and what it means? I mean, sound is, um, it, it travels at a roughly one millisecond per foot. Mm -hmm. you know, it's about 340 milliseconds. Mm. Um, uh, 300, 340 metres per second. So it's very, 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 very slow. And what mm. that means is that if you are standing downstage on the stage and you're singing and you've got your partner, you're singing your duet in, who is 80 feet away, mm. they're going to be 80 milliseconds away. Yeah. Which, you know, is just a number. But in terms of musicality, at a certain tempo, that could be, you know, a, a measure of a beat. Mm. So suddenly you've got two people existing in the same moment in time, but the sound that they're creating is expanding from them and now they're out of time, depending mm. on where you're sitting. Yeah. So part of the technical part of sound design is to try and bring all of those issues together and create a single wave front. So the sound travels from the stage and it's traveling quite slowly. It hits the front row of the audience, but of course, three seats back, they have yet to get that wave front. Yeah. So if we want to amplify the sound, we have to make sure that any speakers that are forward towards the audience have that delay built in. Mm. And so once you've got it all working, it sounds like a natural sound, but it's a much more enhanced mm. sound. And um, more recently, you've started working with uh, the National Rugby League, which must have been a lot of fun when um, uh, the, the stadiums are empty, mm. but to create the feeling that the stadium was full, they asked you to um, make, the, make the sound of the crowd. Yes, we all so have to do. So do you want to, to talk do. about that? <laughs> we all have to do what we do in these interesting times. I was, um, I was working on a, a product last year which deals with orchestral hearing um, risk management, mm. and a product to help musicians and organisations manage the risk of hearing damage in, for musicians, mm. which is a very important issue. And you know, when COVID came along, that all went into hibernation for a while. But I had done a lot of work mm. in uh, programming and development that allowed me to start playing with just ideas of my own mm. for synthesis, mm. for um, sound design, music synthesis. Um, and along came this. Um, challenge of could we generate live crowd for on-air broadcast mm. it sounds convincing you know and most sound people have tried to you know create soundscapes from loops of sounds and things yeah. like that and it, if you have time and it's you know you're in post-production you can do that and it mm. can be effective but you're sort of bound to the intensity of the sounds that you've got mm. so trying to go from something quiet to something you know epic like a mm. tries being scored is not smooth yeah but yeah. the work I had done over the last year was kind of the groundwork for that. So I, I sort of said to um, a couple of colleagues, Look, I'll give this a couple of weeks. Mm. I'll go into the den and see what we can make. And I came up with something that's pretty unique. And it's an it's a audio effects engine, which is a synthesis engine, which means that I can put in sounds and then play this instrument, mm. this sound effects engine, and it was the output of it sounds like a natural crowd that goes from small to big. Well, watching it on, on television, it, it sounds as though the crowd is there, <laughs> and they're screaming when someone calls it, scores a try. And yeah. it, it's 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 amazing. Uh, there was a, a day about three months ago where yeah. um, Miranda walked into the studio, and there I was watching television, and it was the football, and I had up on 
my computer the Wikipedia page of the physics of the uh, relationships and markings on the football field. Mm -hmm. And she nearly cried with laughter. <laughs> she was being very unkind. <laughs> but it's been, uh, it's been very, very successful. We've been on air since um, the beginning of this entire round. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we've been engaged now for the grand final. So we're yeah, well, I guess, that. and I think they're talking about having 75% capacity at the grand final. So I guess that changes. Um, the structure of the sound that you that you put in uh, through the through the system. There's that interesting thing in quantum physics, and that is that you, by interacting with something or by observing something, you change the system that mm. that it exists in. Mm. And I've found that um, by being on air, creating these sounds live, that the teams who generally make the crowd sounds from the live crowd have changed. Yeah, and they're now fitting in, so we're working together. Oh, interesting. And so the resultant on air is a lot more full and, and mm. rich. The nice thing is, is that the sound that we're generating is actually based on the crowd that's yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, so. sure. Yeah, yeah. And a nice little tidbit for, for this is that um, some of the source material that I put in there was some of the hosh. <laughs> Opera and the Harbour um, audiences that I had sort of gathered over the last couple of years. Oh, that's fantastic. Mm. Now, you have another side to you that uh, not many people know about, is that um, you're, uh, you make lutes. Yeah. Well, when you invited me to come and have a talk, I thought the last thing I want to do is talk about myself. But... Um, so I thought I'd bring in show and tell things, and it, this so was you've kind got of a, a beautiful instrument there that you, you actually by, made. Um, in my biog for some of the opera projects that I've done, I've yeah. got a little line in there that says I built some Renaissance lutes. Yeah, and a, a few times people have sort of said to me, "I like that. It's very funny." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish I'd, I, I should put something like um, imaginary in my one, and I went, yeah. "No, it's true." And, and they all would look at me and think. What do you mean he built some lutes? Mm. So when I was about uh, 18 and I was um, writing music for a living back then, um, mostly for commercials, TV and radio commercials, I had this strange dream about um, uh, me standing up in front of an orchestra. It was called the Fish Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And I was conducting this orchestra and it was a, an ensemble of all these stringed instruments that I had built. And I woke up and I wrote it down. I just scribbled it on a piece of paper that I had there at the mm -hmm. time. And I sort of thought about it during the day and the feeling of standing up in front of the orchestra conducting my music on the instruments that I built was so compelling that I thought, why don't you do it? Mm. And I thought, okay, that's, that's, that's better than sort of going and just sort of hanging out at the pub, I suppose. Mm. So I, I, I got out the, the yellow pages, as you did in those days, mm. and looked for some instrument builders. And I phoned one guy. Um, he's an Australian guitar builder called Gerard Gillet. And um, he was so positive. Mm. I just sort of phoned him and said, hey, I'm this 18-year-old fool. I want to come along and build some instruments. And he went, mm. yeah, sure. So I drove out to Botany. And I left his um, workshop about an hour later with some um, raw timbers that I loved. And he was just so overwhelmingly positive. Mm -hmm. And I just began. And a year later, I had this thing. That's you fantastic. Know. Yeah. It's beautiful. And uh, it, it was quite a, a life-transforming uh, project for me because it... You know, I'd never done anything like this before. I hadn't got, got the skills, you know, and, you know, as a, you know, an older guy now, I can see that it's a little bit gnarly, a little bit sort of butch in some places, but it's still pretty, it's pretty, it's not bad. I, th I think it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the thing that this led me onto was uh, I played it for Wayne Harrison at the Sydney Theatre mm -hmm. Company, and he was doing some productions um, based on his Elizabethan theatre uh, approach. Mm -hmm. And his first production was Much Ado About Nothing with Pamela Rabe and John Howard and Gary MacDonald and mm -hmm. Ruth Cracknell and all this. And um, he put me in there as the composer and I unfortunately had to perform on stage as well. <laughs> well, I'm sure it went very, very well. 
It, uh, that, that spurred me on to working as a composer for about 10 years, yeah. predominantly for them. I did yeah. some film stuff. And do you still find time to, to make lutes? I haven't pulled this out for um, 10, 15 years. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Life's been so frenetic. Yeah. But um, you know, I wish I could sit down and play some of the beautiful Bach that I used to be able to play mm. these days. Um, but um, but you're going to play something for us today? <laughs> I literally pulled this out yesterday, <laughs> and I don't even know if it's in tune. Not too bad. It's not too bad, but I um, I've been playing electric bass uh -huh. a lot of late, and so there's this uh, there's this piece called uh, it's in Italian. This is old lament. Called uh, Frederico e Morto. Mm -hmm. Frederick's dead. Yeah. Freddie's dead. That's yeah. right. Seventies <laughs> <laughs> funk piece. Um, well, Tony, it's been a joy to have you here today. Yeah. And hear of uh, the, the many facets of your career and your life, uh, but and as also, of course, as the sound guru now, as we know you. Um, as I said, it's been a real privilege, so thank, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Lyndon. And I hope that wasn't, wasn't too ridiculous. It was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Lyndon Terracini. We hope you've enjoyed the chat and we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast. That way, you'll get each new episode as they're released. We also hope to see you in the theatre in the not-too-distant future. And you can stay up to date with all we've got going on at opera.org.au.